You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. School of Humans. What do we know about the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson? Well, to sum up, he's on the $20 bill to celebrate his long legacy of being a moody bitch and slave owner who committed a shit ton of genocide against the indigenous people. Yes, that is a very truncated biography, but I also think it's pretty accurate. He got the nickname of Old Hickory during the War of 1812. At that time, he was an inexperienced, hot-headed general. But when he got an order to evacuate a battle, he made sure all of his soldiers could make the trek. He even gave up his horse for the sick and injured and just walked. On the ground, with his own legs. Wow, such a nice guy. The Creek Indians had a very different name for him. They called him Sharp Knife because of his inability to compromise on anything and being a violent, hard-ass bitch. During the Creek Civil War, half of the Creek wanted to attack the United States settlements on their land, but the other half wanted to ally themselves with the United States so as not to lose their land. Jackson was in charge of bartering peace between them, and he made sure that everyone was punished, even the Creeks who had allied themselves with the United States. At the end of it all, the United States took 23 million acres of their land. So that's just a little, you know, background on Andrew Jackson. What a guy. But in this episode, we're meeting up with him in 1837, at the very end of his presidency. At this point, he was less of a sharp knife and more of a dull blade, and less old hickory and more like a soggy old log. He was getting up there in age and feeble after serving eight controversial years in the office of the presidency. He wasn't doing too good. He had a bullet lodged in his chest. He was falling apart after years of being an angry son of a bitch. Yeah, that's a diagnosis. And while his legacy reeks of human suffering, he also left his office literally reeking. That's right. When Martin Van Buren took over the presidency after Jackson in March of 1837, 
he made a big change. He said that food was banned during presidential receptions. Because at Jackson's last big party, he left the White House reeking of cheese. This is American Filth. I'm your host, Gabby Watts. Every week I tell you a filthy story from American history. Today's episode, A Tale of Two Cheeses. Wow, did you guys like that intro? How I went from a reeked of human suffering to reeking of cheese? Was it a weak transition? I don't care. But yes, Andrew Jackson's last public appearance as president was alongside a massive wheel of cheese at the president's house, which, by the way, that's what the White House was called until 1901. And he had invited all of Washington, D.C. and beyond to come and feast. Uh, here's a letter that Jackson wrote on February 4th, 1837, inviting a friend to the party. And I did paraphrase it a little bit to make it less boring. It goes... My dear sir, the 3rd of March is approaching with great joy, before which I hope to see you here. By then, I intend to have eaten my large cheese, presented by my friends of the state of New York. Can you be here and partake of the feast? It will be my last and only public day. Oh, jolly day, getting that wheel of cheese. All right, so I keep talking about this cheese. Do you want to guess how big the cheese was? Make your guesses now. Okay. It was 1,400 pounds. Wow. It was like a literal wheel of cheese. Like, you could use it as a wheel, you know? And if you did use it as a wheel, you could wheel it through the filth-filled streets of Jacksonian America, and then it would smell exactly like blue cheese. Amazing. Yeah, that's right. I'm coming for the blue cheese. I'm a hater. But just to tell you a very important thing, uh, the cheese that Jackson had, it was a cheddar. And while cheese doesn't have to be fresh, yes, it's good to age it, I suppose. By the time that there was this big cheese party, this cheese had been sitting in the entry hall of the president's house for over a year. Mmm, yummy. So where did these 1,400 pounds of cheese come from? Thanks for asking. This cheese... It was a gift. This cheese was created by a dude named Colonel Thomas Meacham from Sandy Creek, a small town in New York State. He was a rich dude with a dairy farm. His farm and processing plant was about a mile from the railroad. And Meacham, he actually wasn't the biggest fan of Andrew Jackson. In fact, he was a supporter of Henry Clay, Jackson's Whig opponent. And so Meacham wanted to show Jackson how amazing New York State was at industry and making stuff. Kind of out of spite. Like, hey, a bunch of people who don't support you can do amazing things. And you know what? I got these fancy buildings and I got industrious people at my disposal. We're going to make something grand for you. That's right. I'm going to make a big fucking cheese for you. Also, let me say, it's important for men who are getting older to have hobbies. So... Thanks, Meacham. Anyway, Meacham went about making a big-ass cheese starting in September of 1835. He had a carpenter make special equipment to facilitate the making of the cheese, and he was able to source the milk and curds from his 150 dairy cows. 
After many milkings and many curdings and boils and toils, finally the cheese was completed, all 1,400 pounds of this curdled beauty. And Meacham, the cheese overlord, he was like, well, I'm not gonna just make Jackson a cheese. I'm gonna make some other cheeses for some other dudes. So he made four smaller wheels, a mere 700 pounds, for Vice President Martin Van Buren, the governor of New York, and the mayors of New York City and Rochester. But plot twist, guys. This ginormous wheel of cheese was actually a hack gift. That's right, it had been done before. Another president had also received the big cheese about 30 years before. That's right, on New Year's Day, 1802, Thomas Jefferson opened the doors of the president's house and was alarmed when he was greeted by a parade of Baptists presenting a colossal cheddar. All right, so let's just leave Andrew Jackson's cheese where it is. Uh, I'm going to go on a very long tangent about Thomas Jefferson's cheese that comprises most of the episode. But this cheese is more interesting. So here we're with Thomas Jefferson now. You know, he was a founding father. He was the third president of the United States. I think when we look back at Thomas Jefferson, a lot of us will say that he was a bad dude, especially given the Sally Hemings situation. But also when he was still alive, a lot of people didn't like him as well. Unlike George Washington, who was universally beloved by most Americans, people had a lot of opinions about Thomas Jefferson especially when he took the office of the presidency in 1801. Some people thought he'd been in France too long and was basically a French infidel who liked to fuck and eat croissants. Disgusting. But another thing was that Thomas Jefferson was a big proponent of the separation of church and state, and that also didn't sit well with people. They were like, God has good judgment. Why are you not asking him about taxes and stuff? They saw the separation of church and state as a huge threat to religious citizens. But the thing is, a lot of people applauded the separation of church and state, even religious people. One big supporter was the Baptist John Leland. Leland was from Massachusetts and was a Baptist clergyman. And when he was young, he had lived in Virginia for about 14 years preaching. There, he might have met Thomas Jefferson, and they might have, you know, had some brunches and talked about ideas. Their relationship is not exactly known. But Leland, from the start, was a big Thomas Jefferson proponent because of the separation of church and state stuff. And that was for a variety of reasons, because, first of all, Leland was like, that will ensure religious freedom. Um, also, state support of religion is idolatrous, so not even good for religion. And the thing is, he was a Baptist, which was, in his opinion, a persecuted minority of Massachusetts. So separation of church and state also made sure that not one religious sect got to make all the rules. It was like, ha, you can't exclude us just because we're loser Baptists. So when Leland returned to Massachusetts in 1791, he settled in Cheshire and started preaching and amassed quite a following. And then he turned all of those Baptists into Republicans who would support someone like Thomas Jefferson he was like, fuck those Federalist scum. And when Jefferson was running for president, Leland campaigned super hard for him. And then when Jefferson won, Leland was like, yes, I am partly responsible for him becoming president. He was so excited about Jefferson being president. He said, quote, 
The greatest orbit in America is occupied by its brightest orb. What a simp. And so, after Jefferson won, Leland was like, I want to give him a nice gift to, quote, honor his republicanism and his support of religious liberty. And as y'all know, what's the gift that won't stop giving? A giant wheel of cheese. So Leland sent a directive to the ladies of his congregation. It was like, hey, ladies, sorry to inconvenience you real quick, but I need y'all to oversee the making of a big-ass cheese. And then he reached out to the rest of the town of Cheshire. His directive to them was to, quote, whoever owned a cow to bring every quart of milk given on a given day or all the curd it would make to the great cider mill. But then Leland made a little joke. He was like, if you're going to contribute, just so you know, I do not want the milk of any Federalist cows. He, 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 he. He was like, I don't want to taint the cheese with any of those nasty cows, any of those loser cows, quote, lest it should leave the whole lump with a distasteful flavor. (laughs) So the date was decided. The cows were brought to the cider mill on July 20th, 1801. A local engineer built all the cheese stuff you need for a big cheese. And once the ladies of the congregation had received all the ingredients, they started making the Goliath. And during the cheese-making process, everyone stood around singing hymns to the cheese baby. Once the cheddar was completed, it was four feet in diameter, 12.5 feet in circumference, and 12 inches thick. It totaled about 1,200 pounds, and at that point, it was the biggest cheese anyone in the U.S. had ever seen. Leland called the cheese the greatest cheese ever put to press in the new world or old. The final touch was to engrave the cheese with Jefferson's seal. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And then came the matter of actually delivering the cheese. Remember, they're in Massachusetts and they got to get to Washington, D.C. But Leland was going to make sure it was going to be a grand procession. We'll be back after these soothing advertisements. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. After the cheese was made, Leland wasn't just going to put that shit in a box and send it via the mail. Also making this cheese was such an astonishing feat that Leland planned to take the cheese on tour. He and some members of his congregation left in late November 1801. For the first leg of the journey, they put the cheese in a sleigh to start the 500-mile journey to Washington, D.C. By sleigh, the cheese arrived at a port of the Hudson River, and then it went on a sailboat called a sloop to New York, and then it went to Baltimore, and then finally it went by wagon to Washington. Everywhere it went, huge crowds gathered, and Leland made speeches about religious liberty. In Baltimore, a traveler recounted seeing the cheese. He said, quote, The curiosity of the inhabitants of Baltimore was universally excited. Men, women, and children flocked to see the mammoth cheese. Even gray-bearded shopkeepers neglected their counters and participated in the mammoth infatuation. So yes, the cheddar was being called the mammoth cheese, and Leland, the mammoth priest. But the thing is, part of the reason it was dubbed that uh, was an insult. Because while there were plenty of people who were super stoked to see the cheese, the cheese was also being politicized and mocked by critics, particularly by Federalists. They're like, this mammoth cheese is ridiculous. And honestly, it's a very embarrassing gift to give the president. Republicans are so embarrassing. For example, when the cheese was loaded up in New York, a newspaper mockingly wrote that there are some bakers in New York now making a giant piece of bread and that there was someone in Albany making a giant bottle of ale. And the article was like, now Mr. Jefferson's friends, they may not only have cheese, but bread, cheese, and porter. Meh. Honestly, I don't really know why that's an insult. That sounds great. The cheese finally reached Washington, D.C. on December 29, 1801. A huge crowd gathered and Leland made a speech upon his arrival where he touted the separation of church and state, saying we must have prohibition of religious tests to prevent all hierarchy. And then, on New Year's Day, 1801, Leland went directly to the president's house to deliver the cheese in person to President Jefferson. He knocked on the door and out came the president. And then there was a little impromptu ceremony. Leland, again, made a little speech. He said, The cheese was not made by his lordship for his sacred majesty, 
not with a view to gain dignified titles or lucrative offices, but by the personal labor of free-born farmers, without a single slave to assist, for an elective president of a free people. That's right, God had no hand in making this cheese. The same way he should not have any hand in local politics. And then he said, We wish to prove the love we bear to our president, not by words alone, but in deed and in truth. That's right, people. If you really love someone, why are you not making them 1,000 pounds of cheese? Now, how did President Thomas Jefferson feel about accepting this mammoth cheese? Well, he did seem to accept the gift with some awkwardness. Uh, first of all, uh, he had a policy where he could not accept gifts, so he actually paid $200 for the cheese. And after Leland gave his speech, Jefferson also gave one. But historians think this might have been an accident. Some people think that he was so shocked by the cheese arriving at the house that he accidentally received it in person instead of doing what he had originally planned, which was just to give Leland and his crew a nice thank you note. But since Leland and members of his congregation and the cheese were just all there, Jefferson might have felt pressure to also give a speech. So it seems that some people think he took the letter that he wrote and quickly changed it to the second person and turned it into a little announcement so as not to insult Leland. This is what Jefferson said about the mammoth cheese. It was, quote, extraordinary proof of the skill with which those domestic arts, which contribute so much to our daily comfort, are practiced by them. And then he sliced off a big hunk of that big-ass cheese. So woohoo, he finally received the cheese. Uh, but the thing is, this event, this impromptu ceremony, uh, caused a lot of issues, okay? Because Jefferson usually didn't make speeches. It was very rare. And so his Federalist opponents were very insulted by him doing this. They were like, wow, Jefferson is giving a public announcement to the cheese, but when he communicates to Congress, he only deigns to write a letter? Wow, cheese over Congress? Fucking unbelievable. And again, the Federalists thought this cheese was insane. Like once Leland and his party left, Jefferson was having a meeting with some Federalists. Allegedly, these Federalists thought the cheese was extremely dumb and called it a monument to human weakness and folly. So Thomas Jefferson getting a big cheese from some people in Massachusetts, it's a silly story. And some historians think that this event was completely inconsequential in U.S. history. But come on, it's a mammoth cheese. How could that be inconsequential? But other people think that Jefferson receiving this curdy gift might have encouraged him to write a letter called the Wall of Separation, which just reiterated separation of church and state. And they think that, you know, the cheese prompted this because it was written on the same day as he got the cheese. That Wall of Separation letter says, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislators should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That was a lot of words together. But basically he's just saying, yeah, separation of church and state, 10 out of 10. But blah, 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 politics, la, 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 la. The real question is, what happened to that cheese? 
Well, no one is exactly sure. Some people think that the cheese was eaten on Independence Day in 1802 and 1803. Some people think that servants would cut pieces off of it and would eat it as a little snack from time to time. And then other reports said that by June 1802, the cheese was already spoiled, that there was a lot of maggots inside of it, and that 60 pounds of it had to be cut off and tossed. But there is some reason to think that the cheese was there until like 1804, because there's this fun story where a senator in 1804 named William Plummer was at the president's house having dinner with Jefferson. And Plummer said it was a fine meal, quote, his dinner was elegant and rich, except for the cheese, which was that very cheese from Leland. When Plummer ate this cheese, he said that it was, quote, very far from being good. Some people think that a little time after this, the cheese was completely expired and the rest of it was finally dumped in the Potomac River. So yeah, so wasteful. Thomas Jefferson didn't eat all of his cheese. Kind of rude, honestly. If I'm getting 1,200 pounds of cheese, I'm eating that cheese. But that would not be the fate of Andrew Jackson's cheese. Let's go back to Colonel Meacham. Remember his cheese instead of 1,200 pounds is 1,400? Wow, 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 wow. That additional 200 pounds represents 30 years of innovation. Anyway, after Meacham completed the cheese, like Leland, he had to take it to Washington, D.C., and again, he was going to make sure it was a big-ass hubbub along the route. So Meacham and his crew started their journey in November 1835. Uh, he was a bit of a showman. So for the first leg of the journey, he got this big wagon and painted it with bright colors and had 24 horses pull the wagon that had the cheese in it. And then the cheese went by boat once they reached Port Ontario. When the cheese and Colonel Meacham were on the boat, Allegedly, he had a band play with cannons firing. This cheese went through New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, where all these people would come out and see the cheese. Wow, amazing. Once Meacham and his crew reached D.C., he was taken to the president's house to formally present the cheese. This time, it was also New Year's Day, but 1836. And as a thank you to Meacham for the cheese, Jackson wrote a letter that was basically like, oh my God, thank you for this cheese. It really shows how New York State is amazing at stuff. I agree, you are great. I love when people labor, great job. After the cheese was presented, it sat in the entry hall of the president's house for about a year. But then finally, it was time to feast. The feast day when Jackson invited everyone in D.C. to come eat the cheese was going to be on George Washington's birthday, February 22, 1837. And again, this was going to be Jackson's last public appearance as president. A notice had been written in a Washington newspaper that said, We understand the president designs to offer this great cheese, which is finely flavored and in fine preservation, to his fellow citizens who visit him on Wednesday next. The president from New York will be served up in the hall of the president's mansion. And wow, when you're invited to come eat some cheese at the president's house, you got to do it. You got to go. Everyone in D.C. was taking Jackson up on the invitation. Men, women, and children from every social class descended upon the president's house ready to eat. Even before they got to the entry hall, they were already assaulted with the smell. One newspaper wrote, 
There arose an exceedingly strong smell, so strong as to overpower a number of dandies and lackadaisical ladies. And here's a fun thing. None other than Mark Twain wrote about the party in a Washington newspaper. He said, The president's house was thrown open. The multitude swarmed in. The Senate of the United States adjourned. The representatives of the various departments turned out. Representatives and swarms left the Capitol, all for the purpose of eating cheese. The court, the fashion, the beauty of Washington were all eating cheese. Officers in Washington, foreign representatives and stars and garters, gay, gorgeous, joyous and dashing women in all the pride and pomp of wealth were eating cheese. Cheese, cheese, cheese was on everybody's lips and in everybody's mouth. All you heard was cheese. All you saw was cheese. All you smelt was cheese. It was cheese, cheese, cheese. Streams of cheese were going up the avenue in everyone's fists. Balls of cheese were in hundreds of pockets. Every handkerchief smelt of cheese. The whole atmosphere for a half a mile was infected and reeked of cheese. Mark Twain is really painting a picture that there was a lot of cheese. And the thing is, there were so many people coming to the president's house to eat the cheese that the house got overrun. People who couldn't get through the front doors were hurtling themselves through the windows just so they could get a little bit of that cheddar. And even though this cheese was perhaps the worst charcuterie board ever to exist, uh, they devoured the cheese in about two hours. Anyway, while all these people came to the president's house to eat the cheese, Jackson was so feeble that he just sat down the whole time and eventually had to leave during the devouring of the cheese. Uh, And so he got Vice President Van Buren to step in and he was like, yeah, you shake everyone's hands. I'm tired now. And then in the aftermath, the smell was so bad because as people had been going to get the cheese, you know, the cheese was falling apart. There was debris all over the ground. And then that debris got stomped into the carpets. And for months and months after this, the president's house reeked. And not only did it reek, the smell of cheese also attracted a bunch of pests and bugs. So the president's house had an even bigger bug problem than usual during this time. So yeah, those were the two cheeses that have been given to our presidents. And so far as I know, since Jackson's mammoth cheese, no other president has personally received a large wheel of cheese. That being said, though, cheese has gotten bigger and bigger. Like, if you were so moved by this story that you were like, hmm, I want to give a gift of big-ass cheese to President Biden... You're going to have to make an even bigger one. Like cheese tech has really expanded since Jefferson and Jackson's time. For example, in 1911 at the National Dairy Show in Chicago, a cheesemaker presented a 12,000 pound cheese. Right? The other ones were 1,200, 1,400. This is 12,000 pound cheese. Apparently at the time, President Taft was there and he was like, damn, that's a big ass cheese. He also said that it tasted good. But the thing is, like people still call big cheeses mammoth cheeses. So that's stuck. But that 12,000-pound cheese, that's a teeny-tiny baby cheese compared to what's been made later. Cheesemakers in Wisconsin in 1988 made a cheddar that was 40,000 pounds. But unfortunately for Wisconsin, they got beat. The current Guinness Book World Record holder for largest cheese, cow's milk, is held by a Canadian cheesemaker. 
That cheese is 57,518 pounds. Ooh. That shows the power of socialized medicine. This has been another episode of American Filth. As always, we learn a lesson. And I think the lesson today is uh, if you want to break into the White House, it seems the easy way to do that would be to present the president with a large thing of cheese as a ruse. Because apparently in the past, you could just walk right up there and be like, here's a cheese. Thanks so much. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Watts. This episode was written and mixed by me. The theme song is by me and Jesse Neiswanger. Amelia Brock is the show's senior producer, and our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. Please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Leave a review. If it's nice or if it's not nice, make it funny. Uh, and also, you can follow the show on Instagram at American Filth Pod. Bye. humans. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.